so grateful um, to be here this morning and to be finishing off our follow series. So also just looking out at all your faces, I'm just, it makes me very happy and very joyful that this is the place um, where God has really been forming me and shaping me and help training me into being a pastor. So thank you all for your role in that. Um, it means so much. Um, so as I said, we are in our last week of the follow series. And so we've been following Jesus all his way to Jerusalem, where he will be crucified, buried, and then rise again three days later. And so we've seen how Jesus's um, interactions with women at wells and raising people from the dead and healing blind men, Jesus, through his compassion and his power, has transformed literally everyone he's come into contact with. And so today, we're going to be focusing on the story of the women, this nameless woman, um, who anoints Jesus with oil, and she intuitively knows what the disciples didn't, that Jesus was the Messiah who needed to die. And so we're going to let this woman teach us this morning about how Jesus is worthy of all our honor and all of our praise. Um, so as we begin, I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes and join me in prayer. Jesus, we thank you, God, that you are worthy, that all of our praise and honor um, and offering that we could bring to you would never be enough, God. You are so good and so worthy of our praise. So would you open our hearts and our eyes to what your word um, would have for us this morning. And we pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I invite you, if you have a Bible on your phone or in person, to turn to Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 16. And then once you get there, I'm actually going to have us all close our eyes, and we're going to imagine the story together. Um, so I'll let you take a second to find Matthew 26, verses 6 through 16. And then, so I invite you to close your eyes, and we're just going to imagine this story like it's a play or a TV show going across your imagination. Um, so cue scene one, the spotlight is shining on the chief priests and elders. So imagine a really fancy palace in Jerusalem, and these leaders are all hunched together at a table, and the tension in the room is high. They're gathered at the high priest. Um, his palace, and they want to kill Jesus and get rid of him as soon as possible. They're scared of the power that Jesus has over their people. They keep hearing more and more about this man named Jesus. And so they say his name with derision and scorn. And despite their hatred of him, they're practical and they're afraid of what the crowds flocking to Jerusalem for the Passover festival will do. So they're like, we're going to hold off on killing him until after the Passover, and we're going to do it in secret. So meanwhile, the scene shifts. So in your mind, let the scene shift two miles away to the east to a humble home in Bethany. And Bethany in Hebrew means house of the poor. So now we're in a town on the Mount of Olives, and this home belongs to Simon the leper. So Simon, he was used to loneliness and isolation, to people scorning him and hating him and running away from him when they saw him. That was until he met Jesus, and Jesus healed him, 
and he's still an outcast, but Jesus doesn't seem to mind. So this evening, Jesus is at Simon's home, and there's this sense of joy and celebration, and they're about to have a meal together. So Jesus and his disciples are all at the table. And then, suddenly, the door opens, and a woman with an air of authority and a determined look in her eye walks in, and she's holding this giant alabaster jar of perfume. And the disciples are whispering and murmuring and giving her the side eye. What is she doing here? Should we stop her? What is she carrying? What's going on? But she's carrying a precious, expensive jar of perfume. And she holds the jar over Jesus' head, breaks it, and pours the entire thing over him, letting the perfume flow on his hair, on his robes, on the floor, the scent filling and overwhelming the entire room. She has done what she came to do. She has anointed the humble king. She lets out a sigh of relief. The woman is met with gasps, disapproving glances, looks of disgust from all the men in the room. What a waste, they mutter to themselves. For a brief moment, she hunches over and wants to hide, overwhelmed by her shame and doubt. Did she do the right thing? Her shame, their disapproval, it's crushing her. Until through the tears welling up in her eyes, she looks into the eyes of Jesus. His own eyes are brimming with tears of acceptance, gratitude, knowing, and love. And with one glance, she knows they both understand something the others don't. She knows she did the right thing. He is worthy of all this and more, she thinks to herself. So you can open your eyes and you can go back to our biblical text for this morning. And we're going to read in the text how Jesus responds to this woman and how the disciples respond. And again, it's Matthew 26, verses 6 through 16. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, Hey, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Wow. I feel like this is one of the most powerful, evocative, and challenging stories in scripture. 
And one of the most revealing things that I noticed in my study this week is the juxtaposition of this story with the stories before and after. So like we were imagining, um, the text right before is the chief priests and elders, they're plotting to kill Jesus in this palace. Then the scene shifts. They're in this humble home of a leper. Of course, that's where Jesus is having dinner. And this woman comes and anoints him and pours out everything to him. And then right after, this is too much for Judas, one of his insiders, one of his 12, one of his closest friends. And he goes out back to the chief priests and tries to betray Jesus and sell him for a mere 30 pieces of silver. So we see the different characters in the story are divided on this question. What is Jesus worth? What is Jesus worth? So we're going to delve deeper into the details of the text and see what we can learn from this nameless woman. I don't know if you guys caught in verse 13, but we're instructed to remember every single time the gospel is preached, this woman. Um, I remember reading that this week. I was like, what? (laughs) I don't do this. Or, you know, when I start a Bible study, I don't remember this woman. But maybe I'll start. We'll see how that goes. Um, So we're going to look to this woman, and we're going to see what she can show us about Jesus' worthiness. What is Jesus worth? And what our response to that worthiness is. So in each of the gospel accounts, um, there are different details that are included in this story. So in John, the text actually names the woman as Mary, um, sister of Martha and friend of Lazarus. Um, But our text, she's a nameless woman. Um, And our text calls the perfume very expensive, but the account in Mark helps us realize that the cost of the perfume would be equivalent to a year's wages. So imagine all of your income from last year, if you put it all together and bought one huge gift to give to Jesus. That's how expensive it would be. And that's not including the value of the actual alabaster jar, which was also very valuable. So we can see a little bit maybe why the disciples would be like, what? Um, That's pretty foolish and extravagant and crazy when you think about it, to take a whole year's of wages and give it to Jesus. So the woman we see gives her absolute best to Jesus in this unrestrained act of generosity, abundance, and love. She doesn't hold back. For this woman, Jesus is worth everything. This starkly contrasts with the comparatively cheap 30 pieces of silver the Sanhedrin offers Judas for Jesus's life. And Judas seemed to be like, okay, great, without a second thought. Jesus and the cost of following him and Jesus' kingdom was not worth it to Judas. Judas did not understand. Not only should we note the incredible financial value of this perfume, but we should also remember that this anointing had double significance. So it reveals her intuition, her adoration, and her faithfulness. And it's also a kingly coronation and a practical anointing for burial. In the Old Testament, the king of Israel was anointed when a prophet poured oil over the king's head, which symbolized God's blessing. And then the text reveals to us that somehow she intuitively knew um, that she was anointing Jesus for burial. She knew that Jesus had to die. I'm curious, um, I read this somewhere that Maybe this woman had been paying attention to what Jesus had been saying and doing all along and must have had an inkling that men like Jesus who heal blind men, 
who engage in conversation with Samaritan women at wells, who raise people from the dead and eat and drink in the homes of lepers, might not live very long in her society. So imagine again the tension in the room after she did this beautiful thing. How vulnerable she must have felt. How exposed and ashamed. Have you ever felt that way when you've been vulnerable towards God and someone didn't understand and you were so confident in offering your love and your devotion to God and someone ridiculed your gift? I love thinking about how Jesus responded and how Jesus looked at this woman with such love and such grace and in such defense of those who wanted to despise her gift. This reminds me of the story of the littlest angel. I don't know if any of you have read that, but it's a children's Christmas book, and it's a tradition in my family to read it every year, and it's a bit silly and foolish because we'll pass it around and read it, and then inevitably someone will start crying, and then the rest of us will start crying, because um, it's just a really powerful story. And so I bring up this story um, because it's this chubby four-year-old angel, and he's traipsing around heaven with a bent halo and always causing ruckus, um, and the other angel angels are kind of annoyed at him. Um, and then the king of the angels says that they all need to bring a gift for Jesus the Christ child. And so the little angel grabs his box of earthly treasures, like his dog's collar, um, a beautiful stone, from the river that he remembers and just these really humble items and so he comes before the throne of God and he's trembling and he's like cowering and he thinks that God is going to despise and be so harsh towards his gift um, but instead God reaches down and grabs that box and turns it to the into the star of Bethlehem and says that because of the littlest angels devotion um, and love towards God that that's what makes that gift so precious. And that's what we see makes this woman's gift of perfume so precious to Jesus. In verses 8 and 9, we see, as I've said, that the disciples don't exactly see the woman's gift in the same way. They actually despise it and with indignation ask, why this waste? The perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. That word indignation reminds me of other places in Matthew where the disciples were indignant at Jesus for stuff he was doing. So they were indignant that parents were bringing their kids to Jesus for a blessing. It seems like they think Jesus didn't have much time for less important people or they just had better things to worry about. So in Matthew, the disciples are often used as a foil and an example of what it looks like to miss the point of the kingdom of God and to miss the point of Jesus. And so, like reality TV, they make me feel better about my life and my own denseness. Um, but I've realized that I can't be too hard on the disciples because it is so easy to miss what Jesus is up to. Because our world and the way our world operates is so different than God's kingdom that is coming into our world from heaven. So I can't get too mad at the disciples. In fact, they're probably responding with the best of intentions. They're being practical, efficient. They want to serve the most people for the least amount of money. After all, in the chapter right before Matthew 25, Jesus' whole point is he wants them to care for the least of these. 
And another commentary I read explained that giving to the poor was also an expectation for anyone coming to the Passover festival, and so they were probably stressed about having enough money for that as well. Jesus, however, not surprisingly, sees things differently and encourages them to care about the one poor woman in front of them and to love her, not just the abstract poor out there. Jesus is always so challenging. Um, God, of course, wants us to have these great ideals of loving others, but ultimately he cares about us loving the people right in front of us. I want to clarify this phrase, the poor will always be with you, that Jesus says. Sometimes I feel like people have maybe taken it out of context, and it's important to note that he is actually referencing Deuteronomy 15, chapter 15, verses 11. And so there's a slide for that. And this verse says, and he's probably quoting this or referencing this, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So Jesus is telling them to care for the poor woman in front of them and is actually encouraging them to be open-handed and generous with the poor, especially the poor right in front of you. And furthermore, like I said in Matthew 25, Jesus identifies himself with the least of these and with the poor. And he tells his disciples that whatever they do for the least of these, they do for Jesus. And these same instructions apply to us as Jesus' disciples today. The woman anointed Jesus, and in doing so, anointed the marginalized who Jesus identifies himself with. I want to talk more about this word waste. So Paul Tillich is a 20th century theologian, and he references her gift as a waste growing out of the abundance of the heart. If it is a waste, it is only a waste in the same way God wastes his overflowing, self-giving love on his people over and over again, wooing them to himself. Just like God's gift of abundant love doesn't really make sense to us all the time, um, that's same, the same with this woman's love. So Jesus is after disciples who hold nothing back who give all their adoration, all of their praise, all of their service unto him. That's what Jesus is after. That's what this woman is showing us. So who are the people in your life that inspire you to worship God with all you are and with everything that you have? To offer your love to God and in doing so to the marginalized that Jesus identifies himself with. At an old worshiping community I used to worship with, I think of a man named Bob who every single worship song the entire time, he would stick up both of his arms straight up to the heavens and just look straight up at God um, and just worship with such devotion and such abandon. I also think of Pastor John and this example from this past week of there was a youth with maybe not a great bumper sticker on their car and so John patiently wrote, him not one, not two, but three letters graciously asking like, hey, we're a church, we want to promote good ideals, and patiently dialogued um, with this young person, and they were eventually like, sure, yeah, thanks, Pastor John, and they, it all ended well, but I just thought his patience and his love for this youth 
was really offering himself to God. And so in being patient and loving um, towards this youth, that was a way to adore and offer love to God. I also think of Nancy Brooks, hopefully you're watching, um, who she tells this story that happened a few months ago of she was driving and there was this man hurting on the side of the road and so she ran out of her car and helped him and he wasn't wearing a mask and he ended up having COVID and um, she's been really careful with that, but just her willingness to love that person on the side of the road, I know that God received that as such love and devotion um, towards himself. I also think of Lori this Lenten season, who she told me about all of these ways that she is devoting herself to God, um, making time and space for God through prayer um, and through a Lenten prayer calendar. Um, so she is making intentional space to devote and love God in this season. I also think of Michelle Fazio, who makes time every morning for a prayer walk with God. Um, she is doing so much for the kingdom, so she knows that she needs that special time to worship God and come before him and bring her praise and her honor and adoration to him. And lastly, or not lastly, a few more people, but I think of Kitty, who's taking care of her mom in this season, driving her back and forth to all of these appointments. I know that that is also an offering unto God. And I think of Tina Parmalee, who's with the kids right now, she has given up the past six weeks of being in service um, to be with the children, the little ones that Jesus says will teach us about the kingdom of God. And as she worships with the children, I know that God receives that as her love offering towards him as well. So I can't imagine a better place um, than Living Spring and being with you all to figure out different ways to creatively and sacrificially offer our love and devotion to Jesus, who is so worthy. And knowing myself and knowing the disciples in the Bible, we're going to mess up along the way. We're going to get indignant and miss the point and want it all to make sense and be practical and go our way. Um, but we can continue to remember this woman and to know that we want to do the better thing. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus. We want to worship him and adore him, knowing that he receives all of our honor and all of our praise, and that he is worthy of whatever we could possibly offer to him. However, maybe like the disciples, you're still wrestling with who Jesus is, and if he really is worthy. Um, so I just want to talk to you for a little bit. A song, next slide, by Andrew Peterson is fittingly called, Is He Worthy? And it's a call and response song with all of these really deep questions um, that you sing the question and then the congregation answers, we do. So some of the questions are on the screen, but do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And then the song gets louder and more powerful and crescendos. And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those he loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. And then the song continues to build, and then it refers to Revelation 5. Um, and in Revelation 5, John is weeping 
because he's looking around and he doesn't know if anyone is worthy to break the seal and to open the scroll and to ascend the throne. And he asks, is, is there anyone worthy? Um, and then the answer is simple. He is. Jesus is. So here's a little recap of Revelation 5. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So this woman at Bethany intuitively understood that Jesus is worthy of all of this, all of the glory and the honor and the praise. So this Holy Week, I invite us to ask ourselves, is he worthy? And I invite us to together as a community to proclaim in our love and our adoration and in our actions that he is. Jesus is worthy of all our honor and all our praise. So thank you all and please pray with me. And as I invite um, Taylor back up, I just invite you during this time of worship to just offer your worship and your praise to God in whatever way that looks like for you. Um, and be open to what God wants to show you in any way um, that he wants to bless you or just reveal himself to you. So take this time as Taylor comes back up. And I'm going to close us in prayer. So Jesus, we thank you, God, um, that you are worthy. That is he worthy. We can answer um, with all the angels upon tens and thousands of angels in a heavenly chorus, God, that you are the worthy, you are the lamb that was slain. You are worthy of all our honor and glory and praise. Um, so would we follow the example of this woman at Bethany who poured out all she had, God, because she knew that you were worthy. Will we remember your worthiness and will we worship you in that um, this Holy Week, God? And we pray all of this in your powerful name, Jesus. So if you would like to stand, I invite you to stand and receive a blessing. So in the name of God, the Father who created you and who loves you, and in the name of his son, Jesus, who is worthy to break the scroll, who is the lamb that was slain, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, who is making you and me and everything new, Go forth this holy week, receiving and proclaiming and offering God's love back to Jesus and to each other. Go in peace, Living Spring. Amen.